The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericahealth.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Good afternoon and welcome to One Hour at a Time. Recovery begins with education and host Mary Woods is here to educate individuals and families and provide support through the recovery process. Now here's your host, Mary Woods. Welcome to the show today. Um, we have a really interesting guest and a topic and we're going to be talking about um, Lessons about bipolar and co-occurring disorders, and it's from a book called Lies in, Sci in Silence, and it was written by S.J. Hart. And I think for anyone, whether they're a consumer, family member, or clinician who really wants to get a really first-hand experience of what it's like to live in a family where, you, where there's bipolar illness or what it's like to experience bipolar illness, um, Lies in Silence is really um, a must-read for any anybody who's interested in that. And I'm very pleased to welcome um, the author of Lies in Silence, S.J. Hart. Welcome, S.J. Thank you. Hi, Mary. Good to be uh, here. Well, uh, in reading the book, there's so many questions that I have for you. Um, I think maybe the first thing, um, you really strive in this about the genetics of bipolar disorder. And I'm not so sure that that's something that we really conceptualize well in terms of um, bipolar disorder. Right. Um, what, what is the prevalence from one family to, from one generation to the next? Well, I, I think there's a couple of ways to look at this. Um, if you look at the uh, Hemingway family, or if you look at my family where every generation has had some type of mental illness and there's been suicide, or in my family, murder-suicide, there's clearly a genetic predisposition. In our family, uh, each generation, the age got lower. My son um, became sick at the age of three, and it became difficult to convince providers that he had um, co-occurring mental illnesses. There was this disbelief. Um, the, the other part of it is, is that it's been discussed for so long as behavioral disorders, you know, which I tend to think of a behavioral disorder as talking in the movie theater when you're not supposed to talk or breaking the speed limit. Those, to me, those are behavioral disorders. But mental illnesses um, in the last, I'm not even sure, five to ten years perhaps, have, have finally been defined more accurately in terms of genetics, biological, neurological. And that tells us a lot uh, in terms of treatment and in terms of progression or how it will act uh, episodically. So I, I think for me, the reason I really stress that so much, there, there's really two answers. Uh, one is that we, my husband and I did seek genetics counseling. I had a lot of fear based on what happened with my father. And twice we were told that everything was, you know, fine and dandy and go ahead and have children. And I look back at that experience and, I, and I'm not sure what that, 
I'm not sure why we did that and, and how, how helpful the outcome was, especially because there's addiction you know, all up and down my father's family. And the second thing I'm going to say to you is a bit controversial, um, which I am at times, and I really believe in my heart that people knew. I believe that there are professionals somewhere along the way or researchers or medical providers that maybe they didn't know 100%, but they knew it was possible that this was moving towards a genetic profile and not a behavioral disorder. And that is why I focused so much in and out. You saw how I weaved in and out the, uh, the issue and the paradigm of genetics. Well, it's interesting because um, I don't even think today when people go for genetic counseling, I'm not sure that they get tested for any type of um, brain disease. Um, it's been a while since I've gone, but I believe you're correct. And I don't know that there's conversation about uh, substance dependence either. Um, in your book, you were very open about um, the, the, certainly how, how you grew up in really, in your early years, um, a very ideal family life. I mean, um, you had three other siblings. Your, your parents were seemingly well-adjusted and very active in the community. And, um, and I think that you talked a little bit about how your father's behavior started to change. And as your father's behavior started to change, your support system started to change. And I think that's pretty common for a lot of families that, um, you know, there's so much stigma attached to people with mental illness or substance use disorders that often the people that they need the most back away from them. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, we, and I experienced that um, more than once. I experienced that as a child, which was devastating, especially um, when, with the episode of the murder-suicide. You know, I believe I wrote about what it was like to have children at, in sixth grade um, saying horrible, horrible things. It's, it's really beyond bullying in some ways because they're discussing something that most people really didn't understand anything about. Um, and now I've experienced it and my family's experienced it again. It's, um, you know, deja vu. Um, and, and this time it's been as a mother and as a clinician and as a wife and as a colleague in every hat that I wear discussing what it's like when the phone stops ringing. You know, we were pretty socially connected within sports and um, spiritual community and you know, what most people do, what I call the boring, fun living, and nothing. The phone stopped ringing. Um, one friend brought over lasagna and breadsticks, and I started to cry because he got it. You know, that's really what it is. It's about reaching out no matter what. My mother-in-law and my sister came and did our laundry, washed our dishes, and this may sound simple, this may sound uh, contrite, but if you have cancer or you have a particularly bad episode of, of epilepsy or diabetes or lupus or pick any of the physical illnesses, people get that and they understand that they need to fundraise and do you know, church gatherings and raise money and help the family. There is none of that, none that I have ever seen where a community will rally around a family that has severe 
uh, mental illness, and especially when you're talking to a family like mine, where you have a mother, a father, and three children. Well, not only doesn't the community rally around the individual, oftentimes the family is seen as part of the problem for the identified person with a mental illness or the substance use disorder. So right. the clinical community abandons them as well. Right. Absolutely. I have fired many a provider for that reason. <laughs> yes, I agree with that. Um, you had mentioned that you wear um, many hats, so maybe you could just share with our audience what your, um, what your background is. Your, of your career? Oh, sure. Um, I have a master's degree in um, therapeutic recreation. That was my first career. Um, I moved from that into family therapy with dual diagnosis uh, families and uh, mostly addiction and, and mental health. Really enjoyed that a lot. Got a lot of really great training. Um, probably the base of what I do in terms of how I function within my job now. Um, I'm the daughter of uh, a mentally ill father who committed a, a very horrible, you know, act. I am the the wife and the mother of, of mentally ill children. I, I'm now an author. I'm a published author. And um, I'm running a company with the help of three or four people doing a lot of public education and cross-training. We work with law enforcement and probation and parole, been to a lot of universities and um, worked with faculty and students, and have just continued to broaden um, this conversation, which is that we need to really open up and have conversations, whether it's consumers, patients, families, um, clinicians, or institutions. And I, you know, when I got sick, Mary, I have to tell you, after thinking, after you know, thinking about, oh my gosh, this is how my children feel, and oh my gosh, this is how my clients feel, and you know, I really, really got it. Um, after so many years as a clinician, I really didn't get it, and I was a pretty good clinician. And then I got angry, and I said, why as a society are we not discussing this accurately? Why are we not sitting down and discussing the suicidal movie theater, which is one of the chapters in the book? Why are we not saying that there are pictures in our head but that we don't want to go to the hospital. We want to tell you what the pictures are and figure out what to do, what to do about it. Um, so my hats move around, and I'm pretty fluid at this point because I've been doing it for a while. Uh, whether I'm doing a book signing or I'm speaking or people asking me questions about, you know, what treatment centers I think are competent. And I'm always, always, always with my family and teaching my kids the language that they need to know. My son is now nine, and he lets people know that he has OCD and that he doesn't like to be touched. And it freaks people out, and um, I understand why it does, but that makes him feel safe. Um, how did you come about the title, Lies in Silence? Well, that's a really interesting story. I don't know how much time we have before break. When I had originally written the book, um, the title was different. The title was Invisible Dragon. And I had gone to a dinner in Philadelphia for um, Congressman Patrick Kennedy and Senator Ted Kennedy. It was a father-son um, tribute dinner for their parallel work uh, on, on the parody. And I, didn't, I really didn't want to go to, to see anyone other than Patrick Kennedy. And I wound up hiding, so to speak, 
from the MC, who happened to be Martin Sheen, because everywhere Martin went, there was a crowd of people. They were having conversations with him that were quite inappropriate about his television show and his acting and his family, stuff like that that's really inappropriate. And I was with a friend, and a friend of mine, you know, mouthed across the room to me, you know, are you ready? Are you ready? And I knew what she meant. And she brought, she literally brought him over to me, and we had a very short conversation, and he asked to read my book, and I sent it, and he read it in two days and called me. And with his help, he helped do a lot of the, he, he helped me with three very key things, editing the book, and there was actually an acknowledgement to him in the book. And one of the things that he talked about that he thought I should change was the title. And he's a very smart man, if you don't know Martin. And what he said to me was, he said, SJ, look, mental illness is real, and dragons are not. And, you know, it took me back. I, first of all, I didn't want to change the title. And second of all, I had to think about what he was saying, and I realized he was right. So my husband and I spent two days going back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. And then when we came up with these three words... We had to put them in the right order because they have multiple meanings. Um, and we'll be right back um, to talk more with SJ about uh, bipolar and other co-occurring disorders. And if you have any questions, please give us a call, and we'll be right back after this commercial. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. Step into the doorway to conscious choice, greater health, and well-being. Attain the balance that you've been seeking. Tune in and turn on 1111 Talk Radio. Feed the mind. Embrace positively. Release the tension. Step out of fear. Host Simran Singh will help you broaden your mind and open your heart toward a greater understanding of how to take charge of your life. 1111 Talk Radio is here every Thursday at 7 p.m. Eastern Time, 4 p.m. Pacific Time on 7th Wave Network. 1111 Talk Radio. Because shift happens. Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge is a nonprofit organization dedicated to supporting the recovery of families and individuals who experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. Westbridge provides integrated dual diagnosis treatment for adult men and women using evidence-based practices. Visit our site today at westbridge.org and discover that doing what works in helping individuals and families gain recovery from dual disorders is important to the staff at Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge utilizes current evidence-based practices, consensus practices, and old-fashioned common sense to provide treatment to individuals and families that experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. That's westbridge.org, family center recovery for co-occurring mental illness and substance abuse disorders. Can you imagine a technology that takes human consciousness to the next level? One that reveals a new understanding of what is valuable and possible in the abundant support of life? The truth is, we already have that technology. We simply need to awaken to it and become the value it creates. For more about this, please tune in to Awakening Value, Shamanic Technologies of Consciousness and Success with host Marty Spiegelman. Awakening Value is live every Thursday at noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern on the Voice America Business Channel. Listen for the right turn with J.J. O'Malley. It's an insider's look at America's fastest-growing motorsports series, the Grand Am Rolex Sports Car Series, presented by Crown Royal Cask Number 16. You'll hear about what happened last weekend and get a preview of what's coming up next. 
from the Rolex 24 at Daytona through Watkins Glen International, Mid-Ohio, Laguna Seca, right up to the championship at Homestead Miami Speedway. The Right Turn with J.J. O'Malley, broadcast live every Monday at 6 p.m. Eastern, 3 p.m. Pacific on the Power Up Motorsports Channel. A fresh look at today's health. Voice America Health and Wellness. You're listening to One Hour at a Time with host Mary Woods. If you have a question for Mary or her guest, call now. The listener lines are open. The toll-free number is 1-866-472-5792. That number again is 1-866-472-5792. Now, let's get back to Mary and One Hour at a Time. Listening to One Hour at a Time with host Mary Woods. If you have a question for Mary or her guest, call now. The listener lines are open. The toll-free number is 1-866-472-5792. That number again is 1-866-472-5792. Now, let's get back to Mary and One Hour at a Time. Welcome back, everyone. Today, our guest is S.K. Hart, and we're talking about... Um, lessons about bipolar and cold occurring disorders, um, learn through advocating for appropriate treatment for my family. And the name of the name of SJ's book is Lies in Silence. And there are a couple um, chapters in her book which she addresses um, suicide. And I think that um, it's probably the first time I've ever um, seen someone write from firsthand their thoughts, their experiences with suicide ideation. And there's one part of your book, SJ, which um, I, I've been thinking about ever since I read it, is that people don't choose suicide, suicide chooses them. And so right. there, there's a lot of richness in that that I'd like you to share with our audience. Sure. Uh, I, I, and I think I, I figured, you know, there's a lot of things I figured out. You, you can be a professional and an expert in a lot of things for many, many years, but until you're in the shoes and in the person's heart and in their life, you know, the bottom line is be humble and realize you don't get it. So ask questions. I like audiences that they ask questions. And when they ask about suicide, I tell them the truth. Let me tell you about the truth. Suicide, the way it happened for me, and this is not for everyone. Everyone's different. But the way it happened for me was that it came on like a movie theater. It was biochemical. There was nothing I could do to make it go away. Um, I was not responding to sleep medicines because I hadn't yet been put on psych medicines. So the sleep medicines only gave me about an hour. And I knew intuitively as a clinician that if I didn't get to sleep, I was going to become psychotic. I just, I can't tell you why, Mary. I just know that, I just know that was going to happen. Um, and then, of course, that chapter where I had to go to the doctor and beg for sleep medicine, that really happened and that was absolutely horrible. Once I realized as I was sort of coming out of that suicidal depression, it became obvious to me that people, there are a lot of people, not everybody, but there are a lot of people that really don't choose 
to take their lives, but that the illness in their brain, the circumstances in their life, not being able to keep a job, not be having their spouse break up with them because of, of gambling or because of acting out sexually or some of these teachers who are, you know, sleeping with younger students, I think there's something going on there. When things begin to fall apart all around you and it doesn't appear, and you're in a depression and you're having suicidal biochemical thoughts, there is only one place to go. It's not a choice. It's telling you. It's beckoning you, and that's a lie what the bridge is about. It's, a, it's about finding a place where you have been beckoned, and you, it is time to go. You're desperate. You're suffering. Nobody gets it. You're an outcast like leprosy used to be. And our society and our culture, in my opinion, is very much stuck in that paradigm. And the book and the public speaking that I do is about needing to make a huge shift in the paradigm. But that will require people to ask questions. Ask questions, not think that because they studied and they have a PhD or an MD that they know the answers. They may know some, not all. So suicide is not, you know, the, the conversation I had with my daughter, which struck a lot of people in the chapter where she had been suicidal prior, and I just wanted to let her know I was there for her. And when I said to her, if you become suicidal again, I want you to know that we want, I want to have that conversation. I want to know whether or not between the two of us or the three of us that we could decide whether it's time for you to go. Not everybody makes it. One of the things I say to audiences that they either they get it or they don't like is that not everybody makes it. And if we're going to talk about stage one, two, and three of cancer, then we better be talking about stage four. And that's really my mission. You know, it's interesting because some of the things that we are taught about suicide is one, if somebody talks about it, then they really don't mean it. The other one I remember learning is that if somebody's under the influence and they have a suicide attempt, then that's not a real attempt. And um, the other thing is is that, you know, suicide is a very self selfish act. I can remember that being drilled into me in nursing school. And that is such a horrible statement. I know, but it's what I learned. Yeah. You know? And... Um, and it's, it's really about blaming the victim, about us not having the tools to treat somebody so we blame them for their illness, which is what we do in addiction, addictive disorders and other types of mental illness, too. But. Right. Right. I agree. I agree. And those are the statements. You know, a, couple, a friend of mine who did a, a very lovely review, an addictions counselor, um, that ran a lot of centers, and he actually was just killed by a drunk driver. He called me. He was crying, um, LCSW. I've known him forever. Or I had known him forever. And he said to me, I had no idea. I was told all of these things over the years, and I just believed them. And you're telling me that they're not true. And I said, no, they're not true. And it was just a really um, it was a very empowering and sad conversation, but he was really humbled by what I was willing to say that other people are 
either they can't articulate it or they're afraid to articulate it or they get the message that if they do, they're going to be called names every night, every night on television. There's horrible, insulting names about people who have mental illnesses. So um, that was a really powerful experience because the two of us were like a brother and sister, and he was just saying to me, thank you for speaking up. That was just, you know, you really need to keep talking. Right, and, and I think for those of us who have clinical roles, it's like you're afraid to open up the door because what if somebody says, yes, I do want to complete, I, I, I cannot stand the suffering anymore, and this is my plan, um, because then by law you have to go into the whole, um, you know, maybe involuntarily committing someone or, you know, it's, it's a lot. Well, but that's the paradigm shift. You know? If, if we can sit with the fact that suicide is a, is a real part of an illness, truly, then we can sit with what, you know, I have to tell you, we used to send, I worked for this wonderful treatment center, and when kids became suicidal, we used to send them home with a plan with their families, and they were on 24-hour watch with their families, and it was beautiful. Because here was this mentally ill adolescent who usually was abusing um, a marijuana or alcohol, and it created this experience where these parents were taking care of this young woman or young man, and they were learning about their diseases and how to care for them. That's a different paradigm. That is not the paradigm of locking people up. When I was in the hospital, I did not. I was not committed because I knew what, I knew what that was going to mean. So I signed myself in, and as I was sitting there, I started to write a chapter in my head, and it was horrible. It's everything that you're saying. I was embarrassed for my profession. I was ashamed. I was ashamed. And I thought, something, something has to be different. Something has to, I don't know what all the answers are, but if we don't start talking about this more globally and saying some people don't make it, how can we shift this? We're going to stay here. And staying here, Mary, not an option for me. Yeah. You read my book. It is not an option for me. Right. Can you just define for our audience what you mean by staying here? Yes. I believe that there are certain aspects of our culture that keep us stuck. I'll try to just give you a couple because I have more than a couple that I talk about in a three-hour period of time. I believe that we must, as a society, define mental illness accurately before we try to address it or treat it. Must define it accurately, not a behavioral disorder, but a disease of the brain, which requires a lot of different things. I believe that stigma is a character flaw, and we all have it. It is pervasive. It is a miscalculation to believe that we can fight it or eliminate it. What is more effective is to acknowledge that we all have it, and I have many, many exercises that I do with my groups and my audiences, so that it's not just about mental illness, it's about stigma, about a lot of illnesses, whether it's HIV um, or obesity. We have stigma in a lot of different places. You know, mental illness doesn't have it all tied up. Um, i trying to figure out what the... What the um, I think that we have to, I've already said this, I'll say it again, discuss openly and respectfully the most severe, persistent, and chronically ill, treatment-resistant, mistreated, and acknowledge that treatment and accepting mental illness is often related to suicide, 
often related to murder-suicide, incarceration, substance dependence, homelessness, disability, poor family, relationships, and social issues. The list of social issues that are just ongoing related to mental illness, overwhelming. It is overwhelming. And the other piece that a, a lot of, I don't know what the hesitance is with this. I think that there's some people that say, yes, you're right, and some people say, you know, where's your research? <laughs> I believe we have to, which is why I go to universities, I believe we have to increase the competence of evaluating the difference between depression and bipolar depression. I think that is a life and death evaluation. And I think we have to understand the frequency of mood disorders and co-occurring disorders with physical illnesses. Often I've seen with thyroid disease, autoimmune disease, migraines, and other chronic mental illnesses, and that makes treatment complex. So you now have a team of two or three or four people that have to be talking to each other, and which is what I call a transdisciplinary approach. I was trained in that. I believe in that. I think that is the only model to use. And the majority of people use the interdisciplinary model, which I was also using for about the first 10 years, and I see the difference, huge difference. With the transdisciplinary approach being? That, that there is a treatment team. Let's say I need four doctors to um, have me function well enough to continue to write, continue to travel, continue to do my job and take care of my children. I would expect that those four providers, either through fax machines or their nurses or their office staff or laboratory work, I would expect that they all have dialogue with each other. As opposed to an interdisciplinary team. Correct. Okay. And we'll be right back. If you have any questions, give us a call. to Voice America Health & Wellness. The Mayan calendar tells us that we will be entering into a 260-day opportunity for us to engage in conscious co-creation with great spirit. How will we prepare ourselves for this exciting and unprecedented time in Earth's history? Peter Tung has dedicated over 20 years of his life's work to exploring that which is beyond understanding. Peter will help increase your awareness and education on this enlightening transformation in consciousness. Awakening to Conscious Co-Creation airs live Wednesdays at noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern Time on 7th Wave Network. Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge is a nonprofit organization dedicated to supporting the recovery of families and individuals who experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. Westbridge provides integrated dual diagnosis treatment for adult men and women using evidence-based practices. Visit our site today at westbridge.org and discover that doing what works in helping individuals and families gain recovery from dual disorders is important to the staff at Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge utilizes current evidence-based practices, consensus practices, and old-fashioned common sense to provide treatment to individuals and families that experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. That's westbridge.org, family sense of recovery for co-occurring mental illness and substance abuse disorders. 
At Last, a radio program dedicated to helping women look fabulous and feel fabulous naturally. You'll pick up tips on natural detox, learn about the benefits of whole foods, practice stress and relaxation techniques, and learn more about health, relationships, remedies, and self-motivation. Tune in to Feel and Look Fabulous with Arena. Broadcast live every Tuesday at 11 a.m. Pacific Time, 2 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. We promise you, it's women's time well spent. This is an important programming note from the Voice America Women's Channel. The Catherine Zox Show is moving. Our new address is Voice America, and we will be heard on Wednesdays at 7 a.m. Pacific Time, 10 a.m. Eastern, starting Wednesday, November 19th. All of the archives will still be available through Catherine's Boombox Player. Remember, tune in to the Catherine Zox Show on Wednesdays at 7 a.m. Pacific Time, 10 a.m. Eastern, beginning on Wednesday, November 19th, on Voice America's flagship Voice America Channel. Your life, your health, your network. This is Voice America Health and Wellness. You're listening to One Hour at a Time with host Mary Woods. If you have a question for Mary or her guest, call now. The listener lines are open. The toll-free number is 1-866-472-5792. That number again is 1-866-472-5792. Now, let's get back to Mary and One Hour at a Time. Welcome back, everyone. Today our guest is S.J. Hart, and we're discussing her book, Lies in Silence, Lessons About Bipolar and Co-Occurring Disorders, Learned Through Advocating for Appropriate Treatment for My Family. Um, S.J., in your book, you talked about how um, you were relatively successful in high school, went on to uh, college, graduate school, um, got married, raised kids, and then you were treated with a steroid that I think triggered your own bipolar disorder. Am I right? Uh, not exactly. Okay. My son, at the age of three and a half, was treated with a steroid for okay. pneumonia. That triggered him acutely. It was a horrible, catastrophic onset. My onset was from a migraine prevention medicine. Okay. All right. So I guess for two things. One is um, that could have been prevented if, there was a different medication? Correct. And the other thing is is that you're in the midst of a successful career as a therapist and you get um, stricken with bipolar disorder and this um, chronic brain disease. How do you work and experience this concurrently? Um, well, for a while I didn't know I was sick and the people around me didn't know I was sick. So unfortunately that built. And then it was really obvious that I was sick because I crashed. A very, very hard crash. And I took a, I took a partial leave of absence, I guess you would call it, where I wasn't expected to come in full time. And I also took um, a leave for taking care of a child because I mean, the reality is it's, it's a horrible, horrible picture. I was acutely sick, and I had two children who were acutely sick, and this all happened in a two-week period. And that actually was part of the reason why I wrote the book, because I kept saying to myself, nobody's going to believe this. This is, I'm sure this happens all the time, but nobody's going to believe it. So I, you know, pushed myself 
which I think lots of people do. I pushed myself to get to work. I don't know that I was the best clinician those days. And I, once I got there, I, I usually was okay enough to work. But it was exhausting. It was absolutely exhausting. It took two years to really stabilize me. And as a clinician, um, utilizing your own personal experience with what you've learned in the textbooks, and you mentioned earlier how sometimes you're able to say people, say people, you've been around this so long, you you understand. But um, I'm I'm assuming because I'm also a nurse that sometimes knowledge is a dangerous thing. You know what you know what what is ahead of you, and. I mean, you talked about the way you were treated when you were in the hospital, and you've talked about how you've had to advocate with with physicians. And um, you know, if you've had to struggle that amount, what does the average person have to do? Oh, it's it's. A, I could tell you story after story um, about what people have said when they come up to me. Many of them are crying. Many of them want to hug me because my sense. And, and I try, it's, it's humbling, it really is, it's humbling to have people say, you're the first person that's ever validated my experience. And that weighs on me because that's a lot of responsibility, a lot of responsibility. And I think that, Mary, I have to tell you, I, I think that this is a can of worms. I think when people really sit and think about it, two weeks after they've read the book, a month after they've heard me speak, some of it will really, really begin to set in. And then the question is, now what? And I like asking questions. Asking questions is very powerful and it gives me information. And a lot of people are not willing to ask questions because they get worried about money and they get worried about life-threatening situations. And my opinion is I don't think we can do any worse than we already are. Well, and I believe we have the money to spend. We're just spending it the wrong way. Yes, right. We're putting up a net under the bridge that's going to cost millions and millions and millions of dollars, but we are taking away mental health care. Right. Um, and, and and what I see in terms of um, conversations about that, I, I just can't read it too much because it's upsetting how little well, people understand. Right. And, and, you know, and... For me, I think what's the most disheartening is is that we're not training people to see folks as individuals. We're training them to see them as, di uh, as a diagnostic code that's supposed to fit a certain amount of symptoms. And and I think therein lies um, is so degrading and humiliating for the person who, you know, people are more than their bipolar disorder. People are more than their schizophrenia. And it's just so dehumanizing. And as right. clinicians, it's like, okay, you know, the, you have to have the diagnosis to get reimbursed. You need to get reimbursed so you can pay your mortgage and feed your family. And it's this vicious circle that just continues to, um, you know, um, exploit, if you will, um, people who have brain disorders. Right. You know? Right. And people feel broken talk a lot with folks who have mental illness about being, you know, I say, you know, you're my people and that kind of breaks the ice, but I, we talk about what it's like to feel broken and what it's like to feel different and are we uh, defined by 
our illnesses, which are not our fault. I talk a lot about this is not your fault. You did nothing wrong. And yet, over and over and over again, I see the entertainment industry, and I see the music industry, and I see other industries that take terminology that is just so incredibly insulting and use it within the framework of the mentally ill. And you and I both know they would never do that with uh, illnesses such as cancer or childhood epilepsy or, you know, the... Or HIV. Right. You know? Right. They, they just wouldn't. You know, I, um, we were talking about this during the break, but this morning when I woke up I was watching the news and on it it told about the Craigslist killer, which in and of itself is a terrible way to describe somebody, but the uh, man who was accused of killing the massage therapist in a hotel in Boston and that he had committed suicide. And um, they had some uh, professional on explaining about about him in a very derogatory way. And he's never met the man. He made an assumption. And it was just reinforcing of, well, you know, um, this is something that he did because of his personality structure as opposed to the fact that, you know, maybe his brain had that same theater that your brain had and other people's brains had. Right, right. And, and nobody talks about it. And I think that, um, you know, it's the same thing with addictive disorders. The, the adjectives and the nouns we use to describe people who have addictive disorders are terrible. Right. And, and they're um, humiliating. And, um, and you hear those terms in the media all the time, too. And mm -hmm. we use them as, as clinicians use them, you know. So um, I think we have a long way to go. Oh, my goodness, yes. But people need to speak. You know, people can't lie in silence. You know, there's, there's so many plays on words that you can use in, for lies in silence. But, you know, it's, it's a call to action that nothing will change if nothing will change. And it's, it's just time. It's time for change, and, and the only way it's going to change, I think, is, is with my people being able to articulate more clearly their experiences without the threat of going to jail or going to the hospital. And I don't know how that's going to happen, but I do believe it should happen, and I'd like to see it happen. Um, and I also think that the medical providers, and I'm one of them, I think people need to be quiet and sit back and ask questions, real questions, not questions off of a sheet that you have to check off, real, honest-to-goodness questions. And until we can get to that, that is a huge paradigm shift. If, if, if consumers are beginning to discuss what is really going on with them and the medical providers, and I mean a, the sweep of the entire spectrum of medical providers, will begin to ask real questions, similar to the way I ask some of them of my children in the book, I think that that would be unbelievably incredible. Yeah, I know, like, in sitting with someone who has a thought disorder, being able to talk to them about what they're experiencing and having them describe their thoughts in a way that they don't feel like they're going to get given medication or get whisked off to an emergency room is um, it's such a relief for them to be able to just talk about their delusions or what they're experiencing. and. For some reason, we just can't tolerate that, you know? Yep. Yeah. And we'll be right back um, with S.J. Hart and talking in our last segment about uh, her public speaking campaign and mental illness and 
ways you can get a hold of SJ if you'd like her to come and talk with you. We'll be right back. Opinions, options, answers. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge is a nonprofit organization dedicated to supporting the recovery of families and individuals who experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. Westbridge provides integrated dual diagnosis treatment for adult men and women using evidence-based practices. Visit our site today at westbridge.org and discover that doing what works in helping individuals and families gain recovery from dual disorders is important to the staff at Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge utilizes current evidence-based practices, consensus practices, and old-fashioned common sense to provide treatment to individuals and families that experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. That's westbridge.org, family-centered recovery for co-occurring mental illness and substance abuse disorders. Step into the doorway to conscious choice, greater health, and well-being. Attain the balance that you've been seeking. Tune in and turn on 1111 Talk Radio. Feed the mind. Embrace positively. Release the tension. Step out of fear. Host Simran Singh will help you broaden your mind and open your heart toward a greater understanding of how to take charge of your life. 1111 Talk Radio is here every Thursday at 7 p.m. Eastern Time, 4 p.m. Pacific Time on 7th Wave Network. 1111 Talk Radio. Because shift happens. Two views, different topics, questions, answers, news, and advice. You'll want to check out Ecoman and the Skeptic live from Philadelphia University. Every week, join hosts Rob Fleming and Chris Pestor as they tackle a different topic on sustainability. You'll hear all sides of the issue supported by guests who provide valuable insights. Get ready to be engaged, educated, and entertained when you tune into Ecoman and the Skeptic. Broadcast live every Wednesday at 11 a.m. Eastern Time, 8 a.m. Pacific Time on the Green Talk network what it comes down to ladies is that defining line between been there done that and ain't going back baby yeah i've heard them call you yuppies and baby boomers maybe even dolls babes darling sugar and sweetheart but i say that women are truly amazing join dr marlene for amazing women brains beauty and style every wednesday at 1 p.m pacific right here on the voice america women's radio network Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. You're listening to One Hour at a Time with host Mary Woods. If you have a question for Mary or her guest, call now. The listener lines are open. The toll-free number is 1-866-472-5792. That number again is 1-866-472-5792. Now, let's get back to Mary and One Hour at a Time. Welcome back. We're talking today with S.J. Hart, and we're talking about her book, Lies in Silence, Lessons About Bipolar and Co-Occurring Disorders, Learned Through Advocating for Appropriate Treatment for My Family. And certainly one lesson is to ask questions. Another lesson is to um, find the right doctor. And um, is there another lesson that you would share with our audience that you think is crucial? Oh, there's tons. I, I think you have to give yourself permission within the sec. I always tell clients go to an appointment twice because the first appointment's really not enough information. If it's not a good fit, fire them and move on, which is not always simple depending on what state you live in. 
I think you have to, um, I got my knowledge literally reading three hours a night because I was trying to save my children from the same fate as my father. So I was desperate. Um, I was trying to not repeat history, which you and I just talked about in terms of legacies. Um, I think that you have to get involved in support groups, whether they're in real life. Um, if you're not comfortable with that, there are plenty that are on uh, on the Internet. I have a group of women. There's six of us. There used to be more than six of us. Um, we've been helping each other. with each Between the six of us, we have 18, 18 sick children. Um, and we are there for each other all the time. So I think that's a lesson that was learned. Um, find the friends. You know, you had a lot of friends before everybody got sick. Find a handful of friends that are still there for you. That took a long time to figure out because they have to get it. They have to really understand you can't explain it because um, that's exhausting. And what else did I learn? I learned to speak, and I learned to be comfortable sitting, standing in front of a group of 200 police officers and saying, I have a mental illness, and I have three children with a mental illness, and my father committed murder-suicide, and I'm here to teach you about something that you need to know. And that takes a lot. wasn't my first job. was not my first job. <laughs> it was not in no way my first job. I started with the universities. Um, but you know, speaking, do not lie in silence. Speak, nothing is going to change if we do not speak and ask questions. I just keep going back and forth to that. Not being afraid. Didn't do anything wrong. You had mentioned earlier that um, public speaking, either a group of you that do it and you go out and try to educate folks on mental illness? Yes. That started in November 2007. I started at Coppin State University, which is in the inner city of Baltimore. We, um, my husband and I just love them. They love us. We connected very well. And the reason we started doing that was because I was, mm, how do I say this? I was not sure that the publisher and I could agree on the, um, the process of publishing the book. This book to me is, is very personal. And in the publishing world, there seems to be, if I'm saying this correctly, there seems to be this protocol that when you publish that you then turn over your book to the publisher. And I wasn't having that. So we... we um, wrestled, we arm wrestled, some wrestled, arm wrestled a little bit. And then um, I said to my husband, you know, I might not publish and I'll just put this book aside and, and I feel okay about that. That makes sense to me. And that's when we took it on the road. I let a lot of faculty review it to see whether it uh, had academic value because I'm sure as you know, Mary, you can write something that you think is worthwhile and then 15 people can read it and say, this is really not helpful to me <laughs> in any way. So I got a lot of validation that it was helpful and that it did carry a, a lot of information that people didn't know. And um, we've been speaking ever since. My team has grown. We have a business called SJ Hart and Associates, International Advocacy. Um, I have it's me and my husband. I have two people. I have a tech guy, and I have another woman who's helpful in organizing some things. And then there's two other people that are more part-time. 
and um, we've done some traveling. And the majority of the time, I would say, is humbling, absolutely humbling. How can people get in touch with you if they want to get a hold of you? Um, that's a great question. Right now, my PR rep is um, putting together my website, which should be up in the next two weeks or by the end of August. So my publisher is allowing uh, the traffic flow to go through his uh, website, which is www.idlarbor.com. One word, idlearbor.com. And he'll collect anybody who wants to um, have me come uh, do some, whether it's training or public speaking. I work anywhere between about 90 minutes and six hours uh, in terms of what you're, you know, what are you looking for? Are you looking for just a hit and miss or do you really want to take your department and turn it upside down? So they can get, his name is Tom Blaschko and they can reach him at uh, his publishing website and my book is on there obviously. Um, in the last few minutes, I, I don't want to be remiss and, and leave out the whole part of how addiction plays into bipolar disorder because um, certainly at Westbridge we treat folks with co-occurring disorders, but, um, you know, it, it just seems to be so prevalent, whether it's an eating disorder or a substance use disorder or gambling. Um, it's The brain is really on fire. The brain is on fire, Mary. I use that expression all the time. I, I didn't know. I've not heard anybody else use it. Well, I've been using it. I, we, we use it here <laughs> because it just that's great. That's what I say. Help people understand who get so frustrated with why is this person doing what I want them to do? Well, their brain's right. on fire. They can't. Right. Oh my God, that's so interesting. Um. Well, I mean, there's a couple of things. One is that I discuss these disorders as traveling in pairs and groups. None of them seem to like to be by themselves. So they couple up or they pair up or they group up in lots of different ways. And, and the more there are, the more complex clearly they are to treat. And then there's always the question of well, which do we treat first and, and, and that whole conversation. The last time I looked at my slides and I try to update my information every few months, I believe the, I believe the statistic for um, mental illness and suicide is 90%. And I think the, I think the, the percentage is equally as high for mental illness and substance dependence. What I talk to people about is that I talk. I like to talk to law enforcement about this because it gets them a little riled up. You know, I talk to them about if you don't have an insurance policy and you can't afford the pharmaceuticals, you know, marijuana does function as a mood stabilizer, and cocaine does function as a um, as you know a stimulant. And for people that can't get the treatment they really need you've got your hands full because they're going to continue to use in order to have periods of time of less suffering. Now, I am not, by any sense of the word, I'm not uh, condoning that people use street drugs. 
I'm just saying that I understand it. Right. Or alcohol, for that matter. Definitely alcohol. No doubt. Well, um, I want to thank you, SJ, for spending this hour with us, and more importantly, for sharing this very personal um, experience of your family, both your family of origin and your current family, about bipolar disorder. Once again, I think it's a must-read for any clinician that's working with individuals or families that are going through this because it certainly opened up my eyes to a lot of things and um, I want to thank you for that. You're welcome. And have a good week everybody and remember um, the book is Lies in Silence and the author is S.J. Hart. Have a great week. Thanks Mary. Thank you. Appreciate you joining us today for one hour at a time. Successful recovery from a substance abuse problem or mental illness depends on education and support of loved ones. Thank you for being that support system. Be sure to tune in next week for another hour of education and compassion. One hour at a time. We'll see you next week.